New York City is layered in history. It's a history that fascinated the patriarch of one of New York City's most prominent real estate families. Seymour B. Durst amassed a huge collection of New York memorabilia. It was used to create a new book called New York Rising. It explores the development of the city from the 17th century to the skyscraper age. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. With me now in the studio are the editors of New York Rising, Kate Asher and Thomas Mellons. Kate, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thomas, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure as well. Let's start off by talking about the man who made this possible, Seymour B. Durst. Seymour uh, Durst was a uh, was the patriarch of one of the uh, key real estate families in New York. It's a industry that's central uh, to the identity and the history of the city, uh, but it is actually concentrated in a relatively small number of uh, people and, and families. And in addition to being a uh, very successful developer who uh, made a left a huge mark on, on the city, uh, Seymour Durst was also a, a bibliophile and a collector and really a kind of uh, almost unaffiliated scholar of the city in the sense that he really was passionate about how the city uh, had developed and grown. Uh, and he collected very, very widely, uh, which is to say that he collected uh, books uh, and rare books, but also maps and photographs and etchings and sometimes even objects, uh, napkins and, and matchbooks from uh, long forgotten or, or, or long uh, uh, long ago nightclubs and, and uh, gathering places in New York. And he was both uh, scholarly in his collecting and also very personal, uh, almost eccentric uh, as well. He amassed, uh, I believe it's over in excess of 35,000 objects, and he, coll- he had them first uh, stored in his townhouse, on East, 60, uh, East 62nd Street. There were books everywhere. It was my great privilege uh, to actually see the the collection in situ. This is decades ago. Uh, and uh, that, that was quite an experience in and of itself. Eventually, that collection had to be moved, though, Kate, right? That's right. It um, originally was actually sitting in a city college um, or CUNY, actually, building. Um, and then the family donated it to Columbia to Avery Library, which is an architectural library of record. And so that donation was made in around 2011. Um, And with that came the resources to actually digitize it, use it for students, do some teaching. And out of that came the book, really. Yeah. So what inspired your involvement in this project? Well, I teach at Columbia. Um, I teach the history of New York City real estate. And in years of teaching it, I have yet to find a book that could be considered anything close to a textbook. For that class, there's lots of different stories and older books, but there hadn't been anything. And I thought it might make an interesting textbook to use this collection since it is chronological from the Dutch period right up to, you know, the end of the 20th century as a textbook. And so that's really where it started, the idea that this could be used with students to commemorate Seymour, but also as a teaching tool. We're talking about 400 years of history here, right, Thomas? We are indeed. So the uh, book really starts with the arrival of Europeans uh, and the development of the city as an outgrowth of a commercial uh, enterprise, which from the very beginning distinguishes it from other American cities that grew out of uh, religious experiments uh, or, or people seeking a, a certain kind of freedom. Uh, in New York, it, it's about commerce from the very beginning, and, and so that 
uh, con- continues, I think, to, to really shape the city's character. Kate, what fascinates you most about the early history of New York? Um, well, you know, the, the physical New York of that early period is nothing like the physical New York of today. And most people wouldn't ever realize that what they look at, particularly in Lower Manhattan, is about twice the size of what Lower Manhattan was during that period. And I say Lower Manhattan, it was really uh, New Amsterdam at that time, and then became New York in the 17th century. But it was tiny. It was really just a sliver of land. And we've managed to fill both the east and west sides. And now we think of Lower Manhattan as small, but really it's it's very much bigger than it was in those days. There's a chapter specifically devoted to the development of Lower Manhattan, correct? There is. The, the entire book is divided into 10 chapters, and they are chronologically uh, arranged, uh, going to about the year 2000. Uh, but each chapter also has a thematic focus. So it's not a, a straight chronology in the sense that we talk about the growth of the city from its colonial roots and then the uh, formation of the city in terms of the street grid. There's a chapter that focuses on the rise of the apartment building as a building type. People don't realize that until relatively recently, most New Yorkers were living in private houses or in tenements, that they that what we think of as the apartment building is actually for the middle class or the upper middle class or the wealthy even, is a relatively new invention. There's a chapter on skyscrapers, the growth of mass transit, etc. The book also focuses on the development of NYCHA housing, public housing, in New York City. That's right. That's one of the chapters that also looks at public housing as opposed to separately from the rise of the apartment. How did public housing evolve here in the city? Oh, well, that's a a good question. Um, Tom, you probably are... Best equipped to answer that one. It actually, uh, thank you, it it actually is established in 1934, and it predates the National Housing Authority. So from the very, from from the get-go, the the notion of housing that is specifically Built for, uh, built by, and uh, managed and operated by the government is really a kind of New York idea, and and, and the city takes a leadership role. It was remarkably ambitious uh, when when LaGuardia uh, first uh, inaugurates what's aptly called first houses down on the Lower East Side. You know, he talks about. Uh, the the vision of everyone having a, a decent home in New York. Are there lessons to be learned from that history as today public housing faces a lot of criticism for being grossly substandard? I think there are huge lessons to be learned, and, and really I think that the ambition is, is key. There are a minimum of 400,000 people who live in public housing today. Probably there are closer to 600,000. What many people who don't live in public housing are unaware of is that there are 200,000 people on a waiting list now. So despite the fact that NYCHA is facing huge problems, just the notion that government can improve the daily lives of ordinary people, to me, at this particular moment, is remarkably inspiring. Yeah, I would just add to that, that um, inspiration aside, it's a very big, very complex system to manage. And to increase it, which is what everybody wants to do with more public housing, is is almost impossible. So so it's not easy. And just as somebody who's been in government, um, I have some sympathy with those people who have been trying to manage it. Um, but clearly, they're not doing not doing enough or not doing it well enough. Today, you can't go a block without running into a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts here in New York City. Coffee houses, though, in the colonial times served a different purpose. I learned that in this book. Right. Right. Well, the earliest coffee houses were places of trade and merchants actually moving money and doing deals, which is amazing. When you think about Wall Street, a lot of them actually happened in that very place 
but it was a coffee house. It wasn't the stock exchange. So there's a certain symmetry in thinking about how important coffee houses have been through history. So I think that there's a, a through line in terms of the uh, intersection of, in a sense, the political or the economic and the personal, that a lot of New York business still, I think, relates to personal uh, interchanges. And in this uh, era of, uh, the, in the digital age, you know, I think that it's easy to overlook that. But when it comes right down to it, it's about it's about people interacting with each other. You referenced Thomas a chapter that focuses on the grid, Manhattan's grid. How did that plan come together, what's called the Commissioner's Plan? Right. That's 1811, and um, I think you can a- add to this a- as well, Kate, please. And uh, But one of the... Uh, there's perhaps no decision or no event that has a greater impact on the development of the city than the grid. The fact that it becomes that real estate becomes so easily divisible and uh, so easily uh, bought and sold. I think that that's really um, key. Yeah, it was really a tool to make it very easy to develop further. And nobody actually imagined you'd ever develop to the end of the grid, which was 155th Street in Manhattan. In fact, they didn't even lay the streets out above that because the land value was so low. But, of course, we got there, and um, you know, the grid was a great tool in assuring people that they could invest in something without really even seeing it because they knew its dimensions. They knew they were all the same, and it really led to the real estate market that was the beginning of what we, what we see today. Yeah, I think a lot of us appreciate the grid, north, south, east, west, especially when we go to a place like Queens, which is not laid out in the same way, and you can get lost very easily. Sure. Right. And then there are those crazy numbers that yes. don't help. <laughs> the chapter titled The Formative Years, 1800 to 1880, focuses on the grid. You'll learn all about it there. Durst is a prominent name in New York City real estate. Who were among the prominent names in real estate in New York's early days? Well, probably the, the, the first fellow who was uh, prominent in real estate was actually a fur trader, John Jacob Astor. And his name, of course, is a name we know from Astor Place, the Waldorf Astoria, any number of Astor hotels that had developed. But he was the first one to twig that with the idea of this grid, he could just buy property to the north of what was then the city or the town. And it would rise in value because as the city grew, with immigration, it continued to grow for decades, the property value would increase. And so he did. He just bought land and held on to it. And so he was really the first real estate investor or speculator, even though he built very little. He just watched his land go up. And he seems to me to be a a sort of quintessential figure in the sense that he encapsulates this transition between – trade between objects and the speculation of the real estate market. And so in a sense, the the whole transition of uh, the city's economy much later on from uh, manufacturing to uh, financial services is in a sense uh, presaged even as as early as John Jacob Astor, realizing it's it's not the objects, it's the speculation of the land. The book also focuses on the development of Central Park. Did the park come together simply because people needed a respite from the hustle and bustle of this rapidly growing city? That's a nice story. That's not actually what happened. Um, What happened was that much like the grid was a tool to hasten development, The idea of putting Central Park where it is, which was very far north in the 1850s from where the center of activity was, was really to facilitate development, to convince people to go and buy land or rent land or live north. And it succeeded. 
once they had the parameters of Central Park laid out, all the buildings along it and the properties along it all of a sudden jumped up in value, and people realized that it might be very nice to live up there because it had a park, but it wasn't necessarily designed just because people wanted more space. It's also a creation. Uh, People don't necessarily recognize that, that it's actually not a matter of conservation. It's not as if there was this beautiful uh, site and they simply decided to prohibit development. They actually created the landscape. It's really about scenography. It was uh, not desirable land in in large part. It was swampy, uh, not to mention the fact that there were uh, so-called shanty towns. There there were people um, living there. And so it, it, it's uh, a matter of American imagination. It's not just a matter of, of uh, preserving nature. Again, you have a chapter on the rise of the apartment. There are some magnificent apartments outside of Central Park on Central Park West and Park Avenue. You explore that evolution in this book, too. Yeah, there's, um, there's a series of beautiful apartments all over. A lot of the ones that are focused on in the book um, happen to be on the west side. A lot of those, you know, grand apartments along Broadway, but other places as well. And and I think Central Park was a sort of focal point for a lot of those um, uh, sizable, significant apartments because that's where wealthy people wanted to be. Although in the very beginning, I think that there was some actually uh, concern among real estate people that the very wealthiest New Yorkers wouldn't want to live across the street from Central Park because they actually were so competitive with their neighbors that it was considered that they would want to be living across the street from someone um, and and not just from open space. But that obviously uh, proved not to be a uh, valid concern. This book also explores the technological advances that allowed buildings to go higher and higher, like Mr. Otis and his elevator. Right. Mr. Otis invented the elevator, or at least demonstrated the elevator in the 1850s. And the first elevators were actually in commercial buildings, not in residential ones. But uh, there's a very sort of blurred distinction there. And so that, that apartment... Um, concept, which people really, even wealthy people, didn't want to go to originally because the idea was you should have your private home. And even though the French lived in apartments, they were considered something, you know, for a slightly lower class. But once you had had apartments with elevators, once you had all the mod cons and electricity and running water, they became something else. It's actually, I think, an interesting comparison between Uh, the acceptance of the apartment building in New York, which was slow, and the acceptance of the apartment building in Paris, which was earlier and quick, uh, done quickly. Uh, In part, I think that's because the social structures in Europe were uh, stricter, and people, in a sense, knew their class. So there wasn't the same kind of concern with people mixing. In other words, uh, people with service jobs could live in garret apartments on the top of uh, apartment buildings and interact uh, with very wealthy people on the staircase. And there wasn't any concern that this was going to cause tension. Whereas in New York, uh, with with a looser uh, democracy and, and less clear social boundaries, there was actually concern about that. And so it, it, was, it took a certain um, process of persuasion Persuasion uh, to convince wealthy people that th- this was a proper place to live. What building in New York City has a story that you appreciate most? Oh, that's that's a hard question. I mean, I'm very partial to the Dakota um, because you know when it was built, it was essentially standing alone. It's on Central Park West and 72nd Street, and the idea that somebody would put a building up and actually treat it almost as a, a as a little city and be able to provide transportation, to provide restaurants, to provide those services, because otherwise 
people and wealthy people wouldn't go there, to me is is quite an ambitious one. And when you see those early images, some of which are in the book, of um, these apartment buildings essentially standing alone on this still sort of rough topography with nothing around it, you realize that these were, you know, very, very brave commercial ventures. Thomas, what about you? Well, just just to add to that, in, in terms of uh, the Dakota, uh, it, it's also interesting that the architecture is... Uh, focus very much on a different time and place, that the Dakota itself is is a kind of technological marvel with uh, steel frame construction and uh, elevators, and, and it wouldn't have been possible without modern technology. And yet the architects are not looking for an expression of modernity. They're building a French chateau. And so it's, it, it's uh, whether or not that uh, reflects uh, colonial inferiority or, or whatever, but we're still very dependent on uh, the architecture of the past and pr- particularly the architecture of Europe uh, to, to to persuade people to live there. Speaking of technological marvels, what part of skyscraper history has surprised you most? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, well, what I, what I loved about, and I've thought a lot about skyscrapers, is the size of some of the lots downtown that the original skyscrapers went. We're talking about still relatively small buildings compared to what we call a skyscraper today. Is amazing that anybody could take these tiny lots and then just put floor upon floor upon floor and just replicate the floor plate um, is extraordinary because today those size plots, nobody nobody would develop them. But back then, but the land was so valuable that it was worth their while to figure out how to do it technologically. Just to, to go back to your previous question in terms of uh, favorite buildings in New York or, or uh, buildings and complexes that I think have interesting stories. Certainly Lincoln Center um, it is full of uh, really complicated stories that in some ways I think reveal some of the tensions in New York between uh, the public sector and the private sector. But often I think that that synergy, which gets sort of glossed over with the term public-private partnership, uh, leads to very uh, creative solutions and um, adds to the character of the city. And, and there is a the, – the chapter on uh, urban renewal in, in the book does focus on uh, – not exclusively, but it focuses on Lincoln Center as an example of, of some of those uh, post-war tensions. It also reveals the fact that um, Lincoln Center was certainly not the first large-scale effort at, at urban renewal, but it is the first time in which culture and not just housing is used as a tool for rebuilding cities. What was the controversy surrounding the development of Lincoln Center? Well, for starters, there is the notion of whether or not the cultural institutions will actually sign on. And when, uh, uh, under the uh, leadership of uh, Robert Moses, but others as well, uh, John D. Rockefeller, th- they are actually able to get the... Uh, Philharmonic and the opera to uh, say that they they will occupy the same space. This is considered this huge kind of coup, and somebody says it's as if you had gotten Macy's and Gimbel's to merge. Uh, and so there was that element, and then there's uh, uh, the the notion of. Uh, displacement of people and who gets housed and who gets served and uh, all, all sorts of issues come up. You mentioned Robert Moses. Now, this is a person that a lot of people love to hate in New York City, right? Yep. Uh, Robert Moses was, you know, he was a he was a big figure. He was not the only figure, but he definitely had an outsized presence in terms of the physical um, growth of, of New York City, which is what we're focusing on here. A lot of his physical growth was in the outer boroughs, and we focus primarily 
on Manhattan. Um, and a lot of what he did were roadways, weren't necessarily buildings. They were roadways and parks, but they did have a huge impact on the value of property that was developed around them um, and really on the neighborhoods that they were placed in. How Moses is viewed has changed um, dramatically over the the decades. Certainly, Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, which is many people's uh, principal source of information about him, had a particular point of view. It also reflected a, a particular kind of scholarship. It, it was uh, exhaustively researched, uh, but a lot of it is based, or and a lot of it is based on story. The sort of notion of narrative as a, as the key way to understand the city. That's one way to understand the city. There are also other ways, including numbers and simply the numbers of people who were housed on, in under Moses' developments and the impact that he had on the city, and the notion of being able to think and build that large on on that kind of scale is is. I think, a, a, a contribution and part of the legacy and, and part of how uh, his contribution has been reevaluated in uh, recent years by, among other people, the late Hillary Ballin, who was one of the contributors to the book, uh, and she and others uh, looked at, at uh, his impact in a, a different way than uh, Caro had previously. In the chapter called Moving the People, we learn about something called the Omnibus. I had never heard about this. Tell us about the Omnibus. Well, again, I discovered it in doing the research for this book as well, but the Omnibuses were, I guess, the original public transportation in New York, and they moved up and down the avenues, and they were simply to minimize the number of, I guess, horse and carts that were moving up and down. And so, you know, people went on a fixed route on an Omnibus that was, this was before engines and before cars, of course. So these were pulled by a variety of means, but initially by horses. Um, and they went up and down certain avenues, and it's the way people began to commute to work because up until that time you couldn't really commute to work other than your own private carriage, and the streets were getting very crowded. How many people would they carry? What was the capacity of the omnibus? Well, the original ones were quite small. Some of them had as few as 14 people, and then some of them grew, and they could hold 20 or 30 people, but they were crowded. They were rickety-rackety, and apparently, um, I don't know about dangerous, but you couldn't quite tell who was touching you or for what purpose. (laughs) That's pretty much what I read, which is maybe not that different than a crowded (laughs) subway today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, I I think in terms of uh, mass transit, as is true with so many things, New York actually didn't do it first, but it did it on a larger scale than than anyone else. And so the first subway system is is in Boston, in in this country, but... uh, in terms of uh, the omnibuses and, and, as Kate said, people uh, sharing uh, space, uh, the, to, to me that, that sets in, in motion the fact that so much of life in New York is lived in public, more so than in other cities. Uh, and so the, the notion of public transportation being key, uh, I, I think, is, it tells you a lot about the city. Kate, you said the more things change, sometimes the more things stay the same. That being said, what problems that the city faces today do you think are most reflective of what it dealt with years ago? Um, Well, one of the things that I think the city has always been dealing with is density and congestion and the impacts of that. Even though arguably we are not as dense as we once were in the 19th century, now, of course, we're all driving around in cars and now we have other you know, types of equipment and we use more energy. So um, the concentration of people and how do you sort of mitigate against that and yet find room for people who are coming to the city is a challenge I think that has been there since really the early waves of immigration 
people in the mid-19th century thought the city was too crowded. And eventually, after 50 years, the subway was developed and took people to the Bronx and Queens and the outer boroughs as a way to, you know, sort of spread out the congestion. But we're still dealing with that today. We're trying to figure out, you know, how do you move people through the city? Our subway system is broken. We need it, but it's not functioning. We're going to grow by another million people. Where are they going to go? And so we're asking those same questions 140 years, 150 years later. And parallel to that, where are they going to live? And that also is a question that we've been asking for a very long time. When Jacob Rees writes how the other half lives at the very beginning of the 20th century, that apparently was actually a misnomer. And it was more like where do the three-quarters of the population live? Three-quarters of the population was estimated to be living in substandard conditions. So that's a question, as as Kate said, it's an incredibly uh, difficult thing to manage. It, it, for, for, for government, even working with the private sector, it's very difficult And uh, housing, I think, is still key. Times Square today is a heck of a lot different than it once was. You talk about the development of Times Square in this book. Times Square has gone through so many lives. And, and Tom, feel free to to jump in here. But, um, you know, it's gone from a really exciting place to a really tawdry place to a really exciting place again to arguably a place that – most New Yorkers or many New Yorkers avoid now, especially right. during the holidays and during the summer season because it has become such a magnet for tourists from other places, which is a very big part of the city's economy, and we want to do everything we can to encourage that. So there's always been a little bit of tension about Times Square and how we feel about Times Square, but certainly I think it is back um, firing on all engines in terms of the economic development of the city. Times Square was actually my first introduction to the Durst Collection because decades ago I was working on a project uh, about the area and about its history and particularly about this mix of so-called high and low entertainment, which has always been a feature of it. And someone said, Mr. Seymour Durst has this fantastic uh, material and the the sort of darker side or the seedy side is not new uh, and it actually goes back to the 19th century. And so that's when I first found that he had fantastic material that no one else had. How did you go about going through the material in the Durst collection and curating the material for this book? Well, that wouldn't have been possible without the staff at Avery Library. Avery Library is one of the great architectural libraries of the world. And uh, we worked very closely with librarians and archivists there to... uh, to, to, to go on a journey through this material. And the thematic structure of the book helped uh, because then uh, you could focus your search to some extent and, and not just have to, 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 to look at every single item that, that fell along a, a, a timeline, but you could look for things that had to do with transportation and look for things that had to do with housing. But ultimately, the contributors for each of those sections selected the images that they liked best from a larger um, portfolio of images or material that had been culled for them. So a lot of it is their personal choices as to what they wanted to write about. Why don't you tell us about the contributors? So we have... um, I guess we have a contributor per chapter. There was 10 of them. And they most of them have some affiliation with Columbia, not all of them. Russell Shorto, who wrote The Island That Changed the World, This and the World, um, is, is not. But most of them have either taught at Columbia or are teaching there now. Um, and they range from people like Andrew Dolcart, who's a celebrated 
uh, historic preservation um, academic to, um, uh, as Tom mentioned, the late Hilary Ballin, Carol Willis, who founded and runs the Skyscraper Museum, and many others. And each of them have a topic or a period or, as Tom says, a theme that has driven their work. Lindsay Galen, for example, wrote a wonderful book about Times Square. And so we look to them to select the images from their thematic portfolio and then to write captions. So each chapter has these images that are captioned by those contributors. I think when you're dealing with that much material, there's always a sense of dialogue uh, with the objects. And you want to let the objects tell you a story. At the same time, the sooner that you come up with a story, the, 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 the better you can direct your search. And so as Kate said, we organize these uh, portfolios and then worked with the scholars and they would look at it and try to hone the story that they wanted to tell and then say, you know what, I don't actually need those images. Can you look for this? And, and so that's how they were refined. There are a lot of fantastic maps in this book. No doubt those maps tell a story. Yeah, I think the maps are, in, you know, in my mind, they're one of the highlights of the book. Um, they're not just, and they're not just dumb maps. They're maps that actually, as, as Tom says, tell a story. Some of these maps, if you look at the shading on them, they're maps of the entire island, but they show you exactly what was happening at a moment in time, which streets actually had been developed, where the grid had actually materialized, which streets hadn't. It shows you physical features that we no longer even know exist, where marshes were, where canals were, where big rocks were. Of course, we blasted that all away to create this wonderful, you know, even grid that we have. And so it's just a journey to go back and look at it and imagine what the island of Manhattan was like before we got rid of most of its defining features. Seymour Durst collecting was... uh driven both by academic concerns and by highly personal. So if he liked something, he purchased it. He wasn't concerned with its monetary value per se. Um, Nonetheless, the maps are um, often among the rarer objects and the more valuable objects um, in the collection. And and there are maps that you can find there that are really very difficult to find anywhere else. Kate, you started off by saying you saw this book as a textbook of sorts. That being said, what would you want the takeaway to be for those who read this book? I think what what I really would like students or readers of the book to, to take away is the fact that New York's physical evolution was a function of so many things beyond simple market forces. It involved all kinds of social and cultural um, and political forces that had nothing to do really with what we think about in terms of real estate. Is there a deal there and can I make my margin? And that really is what I hope they'll take away when they look at the span of history that's covered in the book. The book is New York Rising, an illustrated history from the Durst Collection. Kate Asher, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And Thomas Mellons, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. 